So uh, yeah, we are in this little series uh, for three or four weeks called Light of the World and looking at what all the different things that this idea of light means uh, to, in Christianity and it's probably, it's just a good word, light, oh Jesus is light, that we often say without necessarily thinking what we mean by it. And so what we've been doing is just looking at a few biblical passages to try and provide some clarity as to what we mean when we talk about light and Jesus as light. And so last week we were in John chapter 1, if you weren't here, and we were looking about the fact that Jesus, according to John, is one who brings life like light does, and who overcomes darkness like light does, and who reveals things, in his case, God. So in that sense, Jesus is like light. But for many people, those things, the idea that you, God through light brings life or brings victory or revelation, might not particularly sound like great news. Like, oh good, that's the thing I've been waiting for. Because, because they don't think they need those things. I was Last night, I was in Clerkenwell with a group of friends. It's probably 30 or 40 people there. A lot of them doing very well in life, making money and starting families and things. And I just... I reflected this morning, I thought very few of those people are thinking, do you know what, I really need life, or I really need revelation. They probably think, well, I'm alive, got education, I don't really need anything more on that front. But what a lot of people do need and do desire is things like peace and joy, happiness, those sorts of things. That's, those people are seeking that. And so it's helpful at this point to think light in the Bible is not just a, it's not a one-trick pony, it's not a narrow image, it's actually got a whole load of range of images to it and things that it brings out. We're going to see some more of those in Isaiah chapter 9 and see that actually for Isaiah, the light that's coming into the world in and through Jesus Christ is not just something that brings life and victory and revelation, but also that brings a new joy and a new peace and a new king into the world. And we're going to see how Isaiah traces that theme for us in this quite famous passage that many of you will probably have heard before. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 beginning at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, that's God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's rich, deep, searching stuff. And what we're going to do is just walk through it a bit at a time and try and understand what is the image of light doing here? What are we supposed to understand about Jesus 
who is the child, I hope it doesn't spoil the ending to tell you that the child who is going to be born, who is the government is going to be on his shoulder, that's Jesus. But as we do it, we're going to see, so what is Isaiah saying about him, even though Isaiah is saying this 700 years before he was born? What is he saying about the theme of light? Jesus is light. What does that mean for God's people seven centuries before? And what does it mean for us? And as we do that, we'll even end up connecting it to a famous Christmas carol and sort of seeing how these themes all come together in Christian worship as well as in Isaiah's writing. But he begins in a bit of an obscure way, or at least for many of us, it probably seemed a bit obscure. We may have read verse 1 and thought, oh, Zebulun, Naphtali, ah, and not really kind of understood what Isaiah's doing. So he begins, there will be no gloom for who who was in anguish. We go, okay, I get that. In the former time, he brought in a contempt, the land of Zebulun, you may have lost me, and the land of Naphtali, where's that? And then in the latter time, he's made glorious the land beyond the Jordan. It could be a bit obscure. So I'm going to, hope it's okay to show you our map, which I hope you'll be able to see, um, because this map makes some sense. Isaiah's actually doing something quite important in his geographical statement at the start, which many of us, if we, unless our Israelite geography is pretty good, we might not know where these places were. But what Isaiah's doing is saying, look, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, you may be able to see at the top of the map, um, and so we've got this sort of area up in the north, and the reason why that is significant is because in the north of Israel is the part of the country that's always invaded first. So if you are going to get invaded by anybody from the north or from the east, because everywhere out to the east is deserts, all invaders, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, they, well, everybody, they all came in through the north of the country because they followed the Fertile Crescent, which is where there's water and crops. So they come down from the north, and that means that Zebulun and Naphtali, the tribes at the north, are always the guys who get invaded first. So I currently live in Eastbourne on the south coast, and we're the, we're the place where, well, two things happen. We're the place where the, the successful invasions of Britain have attempted to start from. So if you're going to invade Britain from Europe, you try and come in. The, I drive past Pevensey Castle regularly, and it was the first like, Norman, major Norman castle. So when William the Conqueror is going to take England, he's got to come across the shortest bit of the sea and land pretty much where I live. And we're also the place where people decide they're going to drop their bombs on their way home. So we get a bit of that. We're the, we're the Zebulun and Naphtali, at least the town I come from is. And it's that place which is just, Isaiah pictures this part of the country as a place that is in anguish and in contempt. There's a shame associated with living in that part of because you're always having your land taken by other people. But notice what is also in that part of the country. It's the Sea of Galilee. And so what Isaiah is saying is, in the former times, this bit of the country was a place of anguish and shame and contempt. But in the latter times, when the light shines, when the child is born, he is going to do it in and through Galilee, the same part of the country that has currently experienced all the beatings and the shame. In other words, what has until now been a part of the world that is trampled by foreigners is going to become a place that is a source of light to foreigners. Galilee of the nations. It's going to be the, the place that, the, it was almost like a play on words. Galilee, we're used to thinking of Galilee of the nations. It's the place the foreigners traipse through on their way to destroy the nation. And now, instead of being a place of defeat, it's going to be a place of light and blessing to those same nations. So he's making an important point here, saying the way God works is he ends up coming to those people who are oppressed and bringing light to the world through them. And that's exactly what he's going to, what he's going to do. As the light dawns. So that's a sort of geographical point he's making, which is just important for us to see. Verse 2, he then makes the same point again, but without the geography, and it's a bit more straightforward for us, probably. The people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. That's like a, a more straightforward way of saying the same thing. It is the people who are gloomy who will see the glory. It's the people in anguish who will experience salvation. It's the people in darkness who will see the light. And that, in some ways, is just physically obvious. You only see light if we're in darkness. That's when you notice light and you have your eyes drawn to it. If you've ever tried to do that thing where you're trying to read on a screen, um, like you know, a, a smartphone or an iP- uh, iPad or a laptop or something, in bright sunshine, you have to turn the contrast right up because it's very difficult to be able to see and engage with it because there's so much light around, you can't see the light you want to look at. On the other hand, in the dark, you can turn the contrast right down and it's still really visible. Because when you're in darkness, you see light. It's very much more prominent. The obvious example is stars. I, just, I sometimes think that people who live in Lewisham might struggle to understand some of the dynamics of Abraham in Genesis 15. Look in the, st- look in the sky. Count the stars if you are able to. So shall your offspring be. And everyone in South London is going... Well, that's one. I think that might be a plane, and and I'm not sure. Is that another one? Maybe three? That's a rubbish promise. What are we getting excited about? And then, of course, what we do is we go out into parts of the world where there's less light, humanly speaking, and the sky. I've had it in France where just the sky is carpeted with lights, just shooting stars every 30 seconds up in the French mountains. There is no human light for miles, and you can see so much of the great light, but you can only see it if you're in the dark. I've got a friend who's brought his kids up in Camden and he took them out of center parks in Norfolk and his daughter was so kind of overwhelmed by seeing these things but she didn't know what they were because she'd not really seen stars before she went look it's fireworks and he was like my daughter's four she doesn't know she doesn't know that those are stars but actually it's when you're in darkness you see great light that's just the reality and Isaiah's saying that's the same for people who are in spiritual need it's not just a physical reality it's a spiritual reality as well it's the people in darkness where the, that see Jesus and say, that's what I want. It's people in darkness who are drawn to the human Jesus, isn't it? People are like, I am broken and marginalized and oppressed. I need rescue. And they're the ones who see the great light. The people who go, I've got plenty of light. Don't know what you're talking about. It's like trying to read your screen in bright sunshine. I just don't need it. I can't say, oh, who cares? Are you in gloom? Are you in anguish? Darkness? Is that, does that characterize your life? Jesus came for people just like you. And it's people just like you who see him for who he is. And it's actually people who are in light, sitting there pretty, going, nah, I don't need it. They never see the light. They don't even think they need to. And Isaiah is saying, that's what's going to happen when the light shines. He will shine through the people who are in desperate darkness and in gloom and in anguish. They're the ones who will see the glory. And so this child who will be born... You can kind of expect he is going to be the kind of person who will attract all the wrong people. Because all the people who are most in desperate need are going to come flocking to him. And the people who are doing well won't even care. So that's what the light, the light is going to be. Jesus' light of the world means that he is going to be one who is only going to shine in and amongst the darkness. That's what light does. But what does it actually mean in practice? That's a bit nebulous, a bit sort of vague. Um, So we're going to try and turn it into, what does Isaiah think that will mean for people in his day and ours? And in the rest of the text, he starts explaining some of that and giving some things that the light will mean. It will mean, and I think three main ones, we just walk through a, a new joy for people, a new peace for people, and a new king. A new joy, a new peace, 
and a new king as well. And we'll see that as we begin in verse 3, that the light is going to bring joy. There is going to be so much happiness in the world, celebration, delight, wonder, because the light, the child, is coming. You have multiplied the nation, he says. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. So Isaiah introduces the theme of light in the darkness and then immediately says, this is going to be such a time of joy. Let me tell you about it. And he uses pictures that in their world would be just massive symptoms or massive causes of joy in their world. We say, yeah, I know what that's like. And we don't generally know what it's like to celebrate a harvest, many of us anyway, and to celebrate taking spoil in a battle. I doubt there's anyone here who has taken spoil in the last 12 months. It's not something we very often do. But those pictures in their world would be brilliant pictures of the kind of delight and relief that come together when you've been waiting and working for something for a long time and finally it comes. The child who's going to be born is going to bring joy to the world. It's the sort of joy that people will get when they bring in the harvest. Now, in our world, you don't have harvest time. My wife does this. She goes out in the garden once, a, plants a tomato plant in the spring, and then leaves it and ignores it, forgets it's there, and then in the autumn goes out and starts singing, harvest, harvest, harvest. It's just the most ridiculous thing. Like, we don't harvest anything. I wouldn't know a harvest if I sat on one. But the, and actually, I was trying to get a picture of this this week, and I start talking to the, some of the staff here and just saying, what's the equivalent, do you think? What's the product that when it comes back into season in the summer, we all start celebrating? And everybody said, strawberries, strawberries, because at this time of year, they're like eight foot long, weigh about 17 pounds, and they're all white and grim, and they don't taste them anything, but around May, June, they go, that's what strawberries are like. Now, that's, we get a tiny taste in our Sainsbury's world. But of course, if you live in their world, you spend months plowing fields and really work, back-breaking work to try and break up the ground, because it's dry and arid. And then you irrigated it, and you put seed in it, and then you kept watering it, and kept making sure the water channels went to it. And then you waited, and you prayed for the rain to come, because if it didn't, you were in big trouble, and your family would starve. And then the rains came, and then you waited, and then finally, towards the end of the summer, through comes the fruit, and everybody has a party. Not just because of a strawberry. I can feed my family for another year. Here it is. Harvest, harvest, harvest. They're celebrating properly. And Isaiah's saying... That's what it's like when the child comes in bringing light. It'll be the kind of thing where people have been waiting for generations, and here he is. And they're going to say, look, we have worked and waited and prayed and trusted, and now he's here. It's okay. We're going to be all right. Joy. And then he says, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, which is similar. It's another picture of intense work, in this case in battle, which is now going to become intense joy. You've been fighting all day, all week, all month, all year perhaps. You've lost your friends and family on the battlefield. And then there is that moment when you realize you have won and your enemies have been conquered. And all of the people who have been trying to take your land are now dead. And you throw your sword into the ground and you hug and high five your fellow soldiers. And you go and take the spoil. You take the shields and the swords and you celebrate that you have conquered. And Isaiah is saying those things. Two are pictures of the kind of relief mixed with delight that comes when you have finally won a great victory, when you have finally got the harvest, when the light dawns and the child comes into the world and everything turns into color. And when I'm trying to think of a modern illustration of this in a world without harvests and without spoil, I suppose, I was thinking 
This is a creature that Isaiah would never have heard of. He wouldn't, I don't think he'd have believed in him if you told them about him. But I think it's quite a good illustration of what happens when the light breaks and the joy that comes. Let me introduce you to the emperor penguin. The emperor penguins are a wonderful example of what it's like to wait for light your whole life and then rejoice when it comes. Because what these guys do is they stand there, of course, in their, in their huddle, and the male emperor penguins let the women go off for the winter, and then the men guard the chicks under their feet, and they stand in a massive huddle of all of them together just doing this. And they're like this, just all through the winter. And they have a, a little rotation system, so they have to take it in turns to be at the edge of the huddle, because the edge is cold. And so you have to have a turn at being on the outside, oh, it's freezing, and then you move into the middle. And that's how the penguins function, and they are longing for the light. They're longing for the spring. They're longing for the return of their wives and their, the, the birth of their chicks. But in the meantime, they just have to hang in there and go, this is tough. I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on, but there will be an end to these troubles. But it, and there they are just hanging in there, and then when finally it comes, like, the light is here. And the women return, and the chicks are born, and everything seems okay because the light has broken through. The joy of the emperor penguin at that point. I think Isaiah would say, that's what it's going to be like when the child comes. Light breaks in, and joy unspeakable and filled with glory breaks out. As people think, we've been waiting, we've been working, we've been harvesting, we've been plowing, we've been standing here in the freezing cold, guarding our eggs, and now the light has come, and there is joy and harvest and spoil and spring. That's what it's going to be like. That's what the child does. So light brings a new joy. And the light also represents a new peace, I think. Now this is in verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is the imagery of uh, a slave master or oppressor's tools and weapons being smashed. Doesn't it say? The yoke, the staff, the rod of the oppressor. These are going to be broken, that when the light comes, it will be a moment of peace for those who have been enslaved, and it will also be a moment of, verse 5 seems to describe as a massive bonfire of boots, right? Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So we are going to get hold of all of the military clothing, put it all in a pile, pour paraffin on it and set fire to it and celebrate that we no longer need to worry about those weapons and military outfits because God has brought peace through this child who is to be born. That's the moment of celebration. Captivity will be held captive. Oppressors will be crushed and we will celebrate in Peace. The word peace isn't in there. It is in the next verse, but I think that's the gist of what he's saying here. And when that happens, he says it's going to be like the, the day of Midian. So Midian is a, would evoke a story in Israel's history that some of us will know. The story of when the Midianites attacked Israel and God raised up Gideon to defend Israel. And so Gideon is this guy, this is a weak man who gets raised up as a potential uh, sort of warrior on Israel's behalf. But God says, hey, I don't want you to fight the Midianites, this invading army of tens of thousands, with an army of 32,000, which he starts with. He said, get rid of most of them. I only want 300 of them. So you have to send, for every 100 you have, you have to send 99 home. And you have one, right? So you have 300 of you and all of them. Gideon's like, seriously? Yes. And, oh, and by the way, I don't want you to fight this battle with swords and shields either. I want you to stand in a ring around the top of a hill holding a torch and a jar and a trumpet. How does that sound? It sounds completely stupid, Lord, but if you say so, I will do it. And that's what they do. And they stand around the top of the hills, and they blow the... And then they smash the jars, 
And the Midianites are thrown into pandemonium and they massacre one another thinking they're being invaded. And God, through Isaiah, is saying that story, the day of Midian, that's what it's going to be like when the light breaks. What happens? You have a world filled with war and turbulence and tumult and God acts in such a way as to cause the darkness to destroy itself and instead the people of God are going, well, we didn't do anything. We were just standing here. I mean, and you imagine the, the Israelites trying to take credit on the day of Midian. Did you hear how loud I blew my trumpet? I bet I was the one who killed that thousand people. Like, no, your trumpet didn't do anything. You just stood there and God worked a mighty victory. And there was only 300 of you. And you had a trumpet and a jar. But God did it. And that's what it will be like, Isaiah is saying, when the light of the world steps in. He will be one who we as the people of God are able to look and say, do you know what? He's worked salvation for us. I didn't do anything. I just stood here with a trumpet and a jar. And look what God did. Look at how the light banished the darkness and brought peace to the world. The Hebrew word for that, for peace, is shalom. It'd be a, one of the few Hebrew words that probably many of us have heard because we still use it in our world sometimes. Particularly if you're greeting, if you greet a Jewish person, they'll greet with you with shalom alechem. If you greet an Arabic-speaking person, you greet them with salam aleikum. It's the sort of peace, wholeness, prosperity, abundance be upon you. It's a beautiful greeting. And it doesn't just mean, may there be no war. It means, may you and your family experience wholeness and harmony, as well as peace in our sort of slightly more narrow sense. And Isaiah is so fascinated by this idea, this concept of peace or shalom, and the relationship between the light coming and the peace coming, that he ends up talking about it loads in his book. Right, so in, in chapter 2 of this, this is chapter 9, in chapter 2 of this book, he's given this picture of what shalom will be like. He said it will be as if people are taking their swords and changing their shapes so that they become pruning hooks. Because what do you need swords for? Peace has come. So let's turn them into farming equipment. He's continually talking about peace. As we, and you read through his whole book, he does it a lot. And I was trying to think, what's a good way of illustrating that sense of, of the, the weapons of war being turned into weapons of peace? And pictures of peace. And I came across this, which is a series of um, sculptures that were done, made out of AK-47s in the Liberian Civil War. And in 2013, there was a a sculpture series called Decommissioned, made out of them. This is a piece called Waves, I think. And the next piece, which I think is incredible, is called Mask. Look at that. Somebody has made a sculpture entirely out of parts of the guns that were being used and said, I'm going to take those AK-47s and turn them into art. I want people, I want this, this symbol of war to become a symbol of peace and beauty in some way. And I think that's a bit of what Isaiah is doing with some of his imagery. He's saying, look, these symbols of oppression and war are going to become things which help us see the peace that has broken out in the world. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He smashes the staff and he bonfires the boots and he turns AK-47s into artwork. Because that's the kind of shalom bringing peaceful God that he is of the increase of his government and of shalom peace there will be no end so light represents a new joy but it represents a new peace as well a coming to the world of what is right and harmonious instead of what is oppressive and destructive and so light represents joy and peace and then finally it also represents a new king it's not just that we have a world that's got happy and then go sad again. Or a world that's got peaceful, and then, oh no, they've fallen back into war again. So a world in which there is a king, and the king, who is a new king, the child to be born, 
is the guarantee that the joy and the peace will not just be a flash in the pan, but they will be a permanent fixture of life on earth in the new age. Because we now have a new king. It's not just a temporary experience or a political quirk. This is the result of a new king coming to the world and making all things right. And this is the king Isaiah is speaking about. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called and so on. This is the guarantee we have. We're not just talking about an experience of joy or an experience of peace. We're talking about a new king who by being there will guarantee that the joy and the peace will remain and not just remain but continue increasing forever and ever. The government will be upon his shoulder. On the next page, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom. This is a new ruler. It's not just a new experience. The people who walk in darkness are going to see a great light because the people who walk in darkness are going to see a great king. The new king is going to bring with him the light and the peace and he's going to be the reason we know it will always stay here. So we're never going to find a day when it looks like the kingdom of God is advancing and then, oh, no, 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 it's, it's taken a hit, it's gone back and now we've, oh, no, we lost it. We thought we had it, we thought we were the answer, but no, it turns out we've uh, had to go back into retreat. There's no more joy and no more peace. No, this king... This child who is to be born is not going to be a flash in the pan. He is going to be the guarantee forever that peace and joy continue to grow and spread throughout the world. He's not going to rule like Israel's kings. So if you've been reading the story up until this point in Isaiah's life, 700 BC or so, you're going to be thinking the idea of a king coming who's going to bring justice, peace and hope and help, and that doesn't sound very likely. To be honest, my experience of Israel's kings is that even the good ones are pretty ropey, and most of them are clowns or villains or both. So when Isaiah says this, he said, this king is not going to be like the kings of Israel. He is actually going to bring justice and peace and joy. This king is not going to be like Donald Trump. We're not going to have to look around and think, my goodness, you seriously telling me you are the reason why we are supposed to trust that peace and justice will come to the world? I do not have high hopes for this. This king, however, will bring peace and justice and joy in a way that the world says, yeah, that is what those things look like when they are expressed through a wise ruler. And so almost in contrast to Israel's kings, and you might say in contrast to possible presidents, this is a king who is going to be called Wonderful Counselor. This is a king where you go to him and you say, I am in desperate need, I don't know what to do. And he says, let me, let me, let me help you with that. Let me carry your burden with you. Let me explain what I think you should do next. Let me comfort you in your anguish. He is a king who is going to be called Mighty God. And I, to this day, I, I read a fair bit on this verse. I still don't quite know what Isaiah thought he meant by saying there is a human child who will be called Mighty God. Isaiah believes in one God. I don't know how he gets there in his head, but I think he's really just had it revealed and he says what he sees. And I think he's really saying there is a child to be born whose kingdom will be such a perfect expression of the rule of God that people will identify this child with Israel's God. And that's exactly what we do. His name will be called Everlasting Father. His name will be called Prince of Shalom. He's going to be the one who brings the joy and the peace that we've been waiting for. And if we wanted joy and peace and we didn't have the king, we would have none of it. But with the king comes all the rest as well. Lights shines in the darkness and brings with it a new joy and new peace 
and a new king. And I don't know for sure, but I think that's why there's so much light in the nativity story. I don't know, it's Advent Sunday today. I don't know whether you think about the nativity this way. I mean, it's something for children often, but what we do in nativity stories and uh, do it with the children's work and do it at schools and with kids at home perhaps, is we try and get the, one, stay, one nativity scene with all the elements in it. Right, so Matthew's story here and Luke's story there. What we do is we say, well, let's put them all in. So we've got the cows there, and uh, we've got all the farm animals, except for the pigs. We don't let them in. But we've got all the cows and the sheep, and then the shepherds and the wise men and the angels, and everybody's in one scene. And, of course, the gospel writers don't do that. The gospel writers tell different bits of that story in different places, and we draw them all together. But the thing that they all have in common, all of these different little stories, is they all have light at the center of the experience of Jesus being born. Have any of you ever thought about that? The wise men from the east see a light in the sky, and they follow it. And the light just moves and somehow guides them, whether they're astrologers, we're not sure, but the light guides them, and it lands over the stable, and they say, the light is here, so I'm going to go in and see the king. And when they do, they bring their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And that, again, is something Isaiah himself, Isaiah 60, had prophesied that would happen with the image of lights. He said, arise and shine, for your light has come. And what will happen is kings will come and bring you gifts of gold and frankincense. There's a light theme to the wise men story. And it's because that's what happens when Jesus is born. Light breaks in. There's a light theme in the shepherd's story. The shepherds are out there in the dark. Surprise, surprise. And then the heavens become light with the singing of angels. And they immediately go and say, we must go and see this king who we've heard about. Light's even there in the story of the old boy Simeon, who's waiting in the temple, saying, I was told by God that I wasn't going to die until the day I saw the Messiah. And I've been hanging in there for that day all this time. And now, oh Lord, holds this eight-day-old baby who's just been circumcised in his hands. He says, oh Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, because my eyes have seen your salvation, the light to the Gentiles. That's what he said. And he's also, by the way, quoting Isaiah when he does. He's saying, this is an amazing moment in which the light of God has been expressed in a human baby. And because I've seen him, I can die happily now. What else is there to see? The light is here. And so all of the nativity stories, in some way, bring together this theme of light as a way of expressing the beauty of what King Jesus represents to the world. Light brings joy. Light brings peace. Light brings a new king. And Jesus is the light of the world. Isn't he marvelous? I'm just going to ask the band to come up and I'm going to respond with a prayer that we probably all know and may never have used as a prayer. Uh, We may have used it in song form before, but maybe not as a prayer. But this is a a, a prayer that is, uh, I guess, a a sort of declaration of Christian belief written by Charles Wesley a couple of hundred years back. And I'm sure you'd have heard it. So the words will appear, but you probably won't need them. I'm just going to ask if you could stand and we together make this like as a declaration Because sometimes speaking words rather than singing them can help you understand what they mean. And as we do, you'll hopefully see the connection between the king, the light, the peace, and the joy that comes to the world through Jesus Christ. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing glory 
to the newborn king. Father, we are so thankful that you sent your son, not just to be a light in our darkness, but to be a source of joy and of peace. And Lord, we want to join the angelic host and proclaim Christ is here and therefore joy is here and therefore peace is here. God and sinners reconciled, joyful, the nations rise together and join the triumph of the skies. We thank you for this incredible gift of light to our world in our darkness. We love you and we thank you. Amen.